I am so excited to have this opportunity this afternoon to interview author Judith Teitelman about her award-winning novel, Guesthouse for Ganesha. Right at the top of your website, there's a quote that we talked about, left at the altar, spurned, what does that do to a young woman's heart? And why would a Hindu god care? In the first chapter, Esther arrives in Cologne, determined to leave everything behind her. She was left at the altar in her home village, Stedel, Shevosk, when her betrothed, her beloved, Tadeusz, does not show up while she is standing under the wedding chuppah. She's beyond devastated and basically decides at that moment, no one will ever hurt her again. Join me on an adventure, a literary romp through India. Meet me at the corner of patchouli and chai, where books, cinema, and conversation collide. I'm Lovelace Cook. I'll be your tour guide. Welcome to Bollywood and Books. I am so excited to have this opportunity this afternoon to interview author Judith Teitelman about her award-winning novel, Guesthouse for Ganesha. And Judith, first of all, your story made a huge impact on me. What inspired you to write Guesthouse for Ganesha? Well, it's a little circular. Uh, I always have to start out by saying I call myself yet another accidental novelist. I never intended to be a creative writer, fiction writer. I've always been a writer. I've always been a good writer. I published many articles and essays and such in the business and the work that I've done for the last 40-ish years, which is in the nonprofit arts and cultural arena. I work with museums and theaters and dance companies, and I also work with individual artists on the business of being an artist. That's the type of writing that I've done. But in 2001, a dear friend of mine started a new writer's group and pretty much literally dragged me into it, kicking and screaming. It was not anything I enjoyed, uh, but I committed to it and I honor my commitments over the course of the next number of weeks and months. I realized I had a title. And this title, Guest House for Ganesha, and I didn't understand it, but I thought maybe it had just been bouncing around in my head for a year or so. But I really liked words, and it actually gave me some direction for this writer's group every week. And I love etymology, and so I would take time. Okay, what is a guest house? It's a house behind a house. It's temporary. And Ganesha was kind of easy in that I've always been a fan and had much interest in Eastern philosophy and cultures, Hinduism, Buddhism, you name it. And Ganesha was always someone I was very much drawn to. But then about, I think, five or six weeks into these Saturday classes, I found out that a person who had been very important to me, a man I had been involved with in my early 20s, had passed away. 
I'd never been a good journal writer and I'd never been a good keeper of those journals, but I knew that I did have a journal that our time that we were together. I dug it out from the deep recesses of my closet. I start going through it page by page, basically reliving the two years of agony and ecstasy and storm and drong. There, nothing leading up to it, nothing after it. It just said the title, it was June 25th, 1983. And it said the title is Guest House for Ganesha. I started shaking and crying. At that point, it had been 20 some years. And that title had been bopping around in my head for a very long time, gestating. And I surrendered. And I knew that this was something I had to do and that it was a story that was bigger than me. It's a magical realist tale. And it unfolded in a magically realistic way, finding that journal, finding the title, being in a yoga class, and during at the end of meditation, having the teacher read the Rumi poem, The Guest House, which starts out with this being human is a guest house. And it just all unfolded from there. First of all, the sense of prescience, that gift that you were given that was there in your consciousness in in a magical way to come back up again to the surface is phenomenal and and fits so well with with the magical realism of Gestas for Ganesha. I was looking at the first two pages of your book, the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Yes. The first letter of the Torah that marks the beginning of duality, which goes on throughout your novel. And that's where there's both a giver the creator and the receiver in in this created world. The Rumi quote, this being human is a guest house. Every morning is a new arrival. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. That's remarkably powerful. Right at the top of your website, there's a quote that we talked about, left at the altar, spurned. What does that do to a young woman's heart? And why would it Hindu God care. I would love for you to introduce the story of Esther and how that all came about. I best describe it as that guest house for Ganesha is a magical realist tale narrated by the Hindu God Ganesha, who is also character. And he journeys with a young Jewish woman pre-World War II, during World War II, and after when she goes to India And really, it's a tale about what makes a survivor, but ultimately, it's about love. I don't consider this a Jewish story or a Hindu story. I very much consider it a human story because all humans experience love. And many, unfortunately, are heartbroken, have devastated love experiences, as happened to Esther in the story. That's the kernel for me of the story. I felt it was very important to bring two what might seem disparate cultures together and also disparate spheres, a human and a God. I don't know if this quote is on your website, Leaving Eastern beliefs and perspectives with Western realities and pragmatism, Guesthouse for Ganesha is a tale of love, loss, and spirit reclaimed. Esther is 17 years old when she leaves home and arrives in Cologne, Germany. She's a survivor. She's courageous. She makes difficult choices. 
throughout the novel, the narrative, Ganesha is there. And in a lyrical, you know, the poetry that you introduce with his narrative. And I'd like you to talk about that. In the first chapter, Esther arrives in Cologne, determined to leave everything behind her. She was left at the altar in her home village, Stedel, Shevosk, when her betrothed, her beloved, Tadeusz, does not show up while she is standing under the wedding chuppah. She's beyond devastated and basically decides at that moment, no one will ever hurt her again. And she is completely in control of herself and her destiny and her decisions. Yes, she's devastated, but she does become like stone and harder and harder. And so the novel begins, she's at the train station, she finds her way to a youth hostel, and she knows one way or another that she could survive because she's a master tailor. And she knows that no one is better tailor than than she. And she does survive, but she's still at her core beyond miserable because this man was the true love of her life. And how could he have done this to her? So every night when it got dark, she would go walking along the riverfront and she would go into the Rhine Park and she would just go over the same path and the same steps and the same size steps, not dissimilar dissimilar to her perfect stitches. But one day, one evening, when she is on this path, and, and it's a very gray world. Europe in winter is very, very dark. And the landscape was very, very dark all around her. And it echoed her feelings and her emotions. But there off in the distance was kind of this beacon of light and color. And she had never seen anything like it. And she was drawn to go investigate. And essentially, it was a samosa stand, an Indian samosa stand. And it was covered in vibrant Indian fabrics. And inside, and it was very makeshift, the walls were covered with images of India and uh, Hindu gods and such. And she'd never seen anything like it. The kindly man there offers to ask if she wants a samosa. She said, yes, she's not knowing what it was. And she's looking all around and she sees the image of Ganesha and he above all the other images really draws her in. And, and she feels a connection and there is a connection. And from that point forward, she never travels alone. I think the point about her world being so gray and to come into this incredibly, was it there? Was it not there? It was just that sense of magical realism. Here's a samosa stand. Completely out of context in 1923. But fabulous. And to color her world in that way and to give her, to plant that in her. So as she evolves, I think it's interesting that you pointed out that the steps, she's methodical. Her steps are measured. Her sewing is measured. She's brilliant. She has a tremendous gift. She's beyond creative with her sewing talents. What she's doing for clients is beyond anything they've seen. Do you sew? This story is in no way a memoir or a biography or a family history. Esther, my character, is 
slightly mirrored to Esther, my maternal grandmother, who was a Holocaust survivor, who I found out only at the family luncheon after her memorial had been left to stand under the chuppah when she was 17. And she was a master tailor furrier. When I had heard that story, and my and she was not an easy person. I mean, she was not a nice person. Those of us just assumed it was because of her experiences in the war. She lost 90 plus percent of her family. She uh, lost her husband. She had to give up her children. And we just assumed it had made her bitter and embittered and basically mean. But at that family luncheon, my Tanta Tanka, my great aunt, who was my grandmother's youngest sister, they were one of five girls, had come from Germany where she lived. And when my grandmother's personality came up only at the luncheon, because at the funeral, everybody is only nice. My Tanta Tanka said, well, you know why, don't you? And we all said, well, we think the war, et cetera. And she said, no. And then she told us how she had been left to stand under the chuppah. And it embittered her forever. That was truly the first time I got real compassion for my grandmother because we've all had broken hearts. And I wish I had known that while she was still among us. Those skills, the idea of this character being a master Taylor Furrier came from my grandmother in that regard. And yes, I know how to sew and I'm very good, but I had no interest. I'm also an excellent researcher. And so that's true throughout the book. Lots of in-depth research on all aspects of my novel. Talking about growing up with your family, when I read the book, I assumed you grew up in not an Orthodox Jewish family, but a family that was practicing going to temple regularly. Most people do. I was not raised Jewish, much to the great surprise of many I have the Jewish pedigree, Orthodox rabbis on my father's side, Holocaust survivors on my mother's side. But both of my parents had traumatic childhoods having to do with religion. And when that's the case, you either hold fast to your religion or you reject it. And both my parents essentially said, this is where we came from. They chose other things. And they said, you all, myself and my brothers, you go do whatever you want to do, which really for me was a gift because I am interested in all philosophies and religions and perspectives and such. My earliest memories were taking myself to Catholic churches and Episcopalian churches and Buddhist temples and everything. That helped form me. And also I'm an art historian by training. And the true history of art, particularly early art, is the history of religion. I've studied it all in depth. And I've always been most drawn to all things Eastern. It's fascinating to me how Esther really learns about Catholicism as a means of survival. And at the same time, on Friday nights, she's pulling out the Kiddush. That was so special because her Kiddush, her grandmother's cup, goes with her everywhere. That was one thing she would not let go of. Her needles, her thread, and the Kiddush cup from her grandmother. I thought that was just a, a beautiful way to connect with family. 
that was how she was raised. She was raised Jewish. Probably the most important research I did from the Jewish side when I was writing this book was one summer I spent one full day a week over the course of seven weeks at the Shoah Foundation. Are you familiar with that? Steven Spielberg's uh, project where he's worked very hard to interview all survivors from all over the world, from the European Holocaust. I was able to go there and it was very difficult, but I watched first-person testimonies of six, seven, eight hours over the course of those seven weeks. And that's where I learned about someone or actually quite a few people who passed as Gentiles and they passed themselves off as Catholics. It's a phenomenally powerful story. When I came to the point where you're talking about crystal knot, oh my gosh, I just had chills. Your novel is so relevant right now in terms of what's going on, what we see happening. Timing is interesting because this was an 18-year journey. When I finally acknowledged, oh, I'm writing a novel, it was always betwixt and between my consulting and teaching and life and travel and such. The journey was 18 full years, 11 years. Essentially, I was writing and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. A year and seven months to find my literary agent, another three years to find the publisher, and then two years to publication. Talk a little bit about your agent and also your publisher, because I think both of those things are really fascinating. Well, my agent is a wonderful woman named Priya Doraswamy. She worked really hard to find the right agent. I queried 50 agents, 10 of whom asked for my full manuscript, nine of whom said lovely things. It's beautiful, compelling story, very, very interesting, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't know how to sell it. And it was around that time I started joking to myself or anyone who would listen. Well, if I pull out the Hindu God and I put in a vampire, it would sell like that or someone would get it. But Priya, it was a very quick turnaround. I sent her the query. She asked for the manuscript. And I think within, it might not even have been two weeks, she had accepted me, which was wonderful. And uh, yeah, she's an Indian agent. I had been turned down by other Indian agents. So it was just the special spark there. Then Priya spent nearly the next three years pounding the pavement, trying to sell the manuscript. And again, for the most part, got beautiful feedback, but we don't know how to sell it. There was a point where we had this discussion and she said, look, I still love your book and I love you, but you need to go to the independents. And I can't do that because, you know, I don't make any money on it. And I totally understood the long and the short of it is I had heard about She Writes Press, which is a wonderful publisher hybrid. That was another quick turnaround. I may have sent it to a couple other independents, no other hybrids, but that was a quick turnaround and the rest is destiny. And I landed extremely well. I think because I'm someone who loves to learn and really understand things, the fact that she writes is so welcoming and transparent and really encourages authors to speak to each other and learn from each other. It's been a perfect place 
to have my first book published. Absolutely. I've heard so many positive things about She Writes Press and Brooke Warner, the editing process, and also the promotion is handled beautifully. The cover of your book is exquisite. Thank you very much. That means a lot to me. I was very fortunate that my book, which is right behind me, was designed by an extremely close friend of mine that I've known for over 40 years, who happens to be an award-winning book designer. His name is Michael Kellner, Kellner Book Design. And I always knew I wanted him to design my book. Even though he hadn't read the story, I just knew he would be able to capture what I wanted captured. And he did. Because She Writes is a hybrid, I was able to negotiate that with Brooke. It's very uncommon that any publishing house would let their author go out of house for the book design. But because it was a hybrid and really a true partnership, that possibility was there. And I'm really grateful. I'm going to read a couple of reviews. Kirkus Reviews wrote, Titleman paints an intensely beautiful world in which different cultures merge in surprising ways. There's a long article in Kirkus Reviews about your novel and you. And also, this was really fascinating. Kazbat, which is a publication for Indian Americans in Florida, said, Miss Titleman, please take a bow for an inspiring and touching story. That's huge <laughs> to receive that from an Indian American community. Those I'm just- very honored. I worked really hard to get it right. And it shows in every way. Are there questions that I haven't asked, things that you would like to discuss that you feel that are important to, to talk about for our listeners to hear about? I would encourage listeners, readers to take a chance because Guest House for Ganesha is an unusual story. Magical realism of which it's very much in the spirit of that genre is not the most well-known genre or even comfortable for a lot of people. I would just encourage readers to take a chance and to remain open and curious. I've heard from a lot of people who have read it that this book was really very much out of their comfort zone. But once they got into it, they couldn't put it down. That's exciting. A huge honor. I understand that a lot of people don't want to get out of their comfort zone. You know, they want to read things um, from perspectives. They understand. And, And I know this story is unusual. And I know for a lot of people... Particularly in this country, they don't know who the Hindu god Ganesha is. They don't really understand it and say, what do you mean, a Hindu god and a Jewish woman? And It's just a Holocaust story, but it's not. And from, I guess for me, it's, I really would like people to walk into it with open eyes and try something different. Because the book has almost been out for three years now. May will be its three-year anniversary, May 7th. I never would have thought about this when it was first coming out. For me, you know, the cover would just attract me and I'd open it up. But obviously I'm not typical. So that would be the main thing. There's woven through is the story of a young Jewish woman pre-war and all that was happening to the Jewish people and how she survived in a powerful and unique way. And her choices 
are also not popular choices for a lot of people. And that makes some people uncomfortable too. But I stayed true to who Esther Grunspan was and her decision-making. It culminates in a way that a lot of people may find surprising. And with an emotional catharsis as well. Very powerful ending. Judith, where can people find you? Your website, uh, social media? My book has a website, which is www.guesthouseforganesha.com. I am on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm not really on Twitter. Those are the main places that uh, I could be found. And I'm so grateful that my novel has been published in paperback, electronic version, and also on Audible. After She Writes Press, was in the process of publishing my book, Priya, my agent, was able to sell it to Audible. You've won all kinds of awards, not only for the cover, but for the audiobook and other awards that I want to put those in the show notes. But if you want to talk about any of those, I would be glad for listeners to be able to hear about those. Well, I... I have been very surprised and grateful. My novel has won nine awards and recognitions. You are the 2022 official March International Pulpwood Queens and Timber Guys Book of the Month. Well, we know Kathy L. Murphy, the Pulpwood Queen, is going to promote you and loves, loves what you're doing. I am so honored and grateful for that. Kathy L. Murphy and Mandy Haynes are the two most powerful proponents and advocates of books and authors that I've ever met. And it's such an honor to be part of this. And I'm so excited that Guest House for Ganesha will be the International March book. I also know one of your chapters is in the anthology Work in Progress. Yes, the first chapter, the opening pages. First chapter, first opening pages. It also explains a bit about who you are and how the writing of your novel came about. That's an unusual twist for anthologies and a great thing. That can be purchased on Amazon, folks. Work in progress, editor Mandy Haynes. Your opening chapter is in it too, your work in progress. Chris, I think we should talk about everyone. I mean, it's such an amazing collaboration. It it is. I, I was just amazed with the grace with which Mandy was able to wrangle 59 stories, 59 authors, and publish it within a matter of months. I don't think she or Kathy sleep, actually. I think they don't. I'm pretty sure they don't. And because I do sleep and I can't possibly keep up with their pace. You had award-winning finalist in the fiction literary category of the 2020 Best Book Awards, the Goal 2020 Independent Publisher Book Award, the IPI in Europe for Best Regional Fiction. You were a finalist with the 2019 Sarton Women's Book Award for historic- Which means a lot to me because mm-hmm. Mae Sarton is such a hero. Also, for Gold 2020 Reader's Favorite Awards for Literary Fiction. Congratulations. Well done. It means well, a please. lot to me that this book has been inspiring to people. And again, it's not for everyone. I just would love for more people to take a chance on it. The person who needs to read it is going to find it and is going to be touched by it. I 
love the idea, the fact that you want to encourage people to go beyond their comfort zones. And not just for my book, for many books. I just think of my own reading interests that I do my best to read things that I'm typically not attracted to because that's where the magic really comes in. And I learn things I never anticipated I would learn. Well, thank you, Judith. It's been wonderful talking with you. Did you want me to read the opening pages or no, the prologue? Sure. So I'll just say to give a taste of Guesthouse Virginatia, I'm going to read the prologue. Dance, he whispered ever so softly. Dance without memory of your heart being sundered. Dance, never knowing sorrow and pain ever kissed your lips. Move, feel again. Recapture yourself who you were at three when your song was pure and electric with possibilities. Dance with me. He peered down at her with eyes the color of fawn and looked clearly into her soul. His trunk gently touched her right cheek. With his one free hand, he carefully lifted her out of bed. Esther took no notice that her linens and quilt were thoroughly soaked or that instead of her muslin nightdress, she was wearing layer upon layer of diaphanous silk. She floated into his forearms and let him guide her around the room. Though it was no more than the size of a small closet, somehow there was space enough for leaps and twirls. To an outsider's eyes, they made an awkward and ungainly pair. She, barely five feet tall and slender as a rod, he, towering at eight feet with a voluminous belly and extraordinary countenance. Still, their partnership was graceful and fluid, and the music, an interweaving of bells, horn, tablas, and sitar, seamlessly melded with their steps as though the composition had been created solely for this dance. Esther felt safe, feeling long forgotten. It was as though she were once again in her mother's womb, floating in warmth. When the cabin door blew open, they danced onto the deck, now more than ever moving to the motion of the waves not far below. They journeyed in contented silence, words unessential. This was the liberation of movement, the release of the past, and all that had held her captive. After some time, dancing in great abandon, Esther even lost sight of her partner as she whirled and twirled without benefit of support. It was a beautiful, crisp fall night, the first calm sea experience since leaving port. The four days prior had been stormy with giant swells, and most of the passengers had severe seasickness. But tonight the sea, and with it the ship, were at peace and gliding easily across the deep. A young couple decided to take advantage of the night's tranquility and went for a stroll around the deck. They came on a barefoot Esther spinning and leaping, completely oblivious to her surroundings. Fearful she would soar over the railing, the man grabbed her, and immediately Esther began to mumble, incoherently it seemed, about a man, about an elephant, about freedom. My God, he yelled, she's burning up, get the doctor. Within minutes, Esther was back in her bed, covered in cloths filled with ice. The ship's doctor forced a few pills down her throat. The pure bliss of the past few hours dissipated. Her teeth chattered without control, and her body shook violently. Soon her being began to relax as the drugs seeped into her bloodstream, their power taking dominance over that which had brought her to such a state of joy. A tear formed in one eye and slowly rode the curves of her face before she drifted into a deep sleep. Tadeusz. Thank you so much, Judith. 
Thanks to Glasgow resident Jonathan Chapman, classically trained musician, artist, website designer, and a really great guy who introduced me to Edinburgh-based Red Note Ensemble and their album, Reels to Ragas, whose music you're listening to with renowned tabla player Kuljit Bamra. For more information, see the show notes at bollywoodandbooks.com, where East truly meets West. 